Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, Bigfoot, finally. Oh, and it's the beginning of season three. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. And welcome to episode one of season three. This is the season three premiere of Small Town Secrets. And I finally got my levels kind of back to where I wanted them to be. I've been messing around a lot with uh, trying to record some guitar and stuff. So everything screwed up. And I think I just got it back to a somewhat normal level to where I can get back into the groove of it. But yes, this is the first episode of season three. Uh, an episode long in the coming, I think. Uh, I looked, I kind of noticed at end of season two, I'm looking at what I have planned out. I'm like, I've done, or I'm going to do, I've done like 20 episodes of this show, and we haven't done like a Bigfoot episode yet. Uh, or at least an episode where Bigfoot is on the featured towns of that episode. I know we've talked about it in some... Uh, news stories and maybe a listener story or two, but uh, he's never gotten a featured segment on this show, so I thought the beginning of episode three would be a great episode to correct that, and so that's what we're doing tonight is Willow Creek, California, which is pretty much known as the Bigfoot capital of the world, and Folk, Arkansas, which is a fantastic story, and uh one, I think I ended up doing a lot more notes and stuff on than I originally intended, so it took a little bit to get this episode together, but this is season three. Uh, we're gonna con- I'm going to concentrate this season on being a pretty diverse season. I don't think, going through here real quick, if we really have 
I don't even know if we double up on states or locations. I think everything, as far as I can tell... Okay, okay, we might go to California a couple of times. But other than that, I think we're pretty much spread across the country. And there's a couple of international things that we'll visit. Some really fun episodes this season. Uh, and maybe a few surprises. Maybe a few topics that... Uh, no one will be expecting, so a lot to uh, look forward to in the next uh, 20 weeks or so as we make our way through Season 3. Uh, the other thing, I just want to let everyone know, I'm going to begin work on a Patreon uh, starting this season, hopefully. I'm not going to put like a big timestamp or anything on it. Uh, I'm going to shoot for, hopefully by Episode 5 of this season, of getting it up and running, but... I'm not going to stress myself out about it. When I get around to getting it ready and it's ready, then I'll let everyone know what it's going to be. But I think that's all kind of the housekeeping notes. Let's uh, let's just crack into the episode. Let's get into some Bigfoot. But before we get into some Bigfoot, uh, let's listen to a Big Heads Media promo. This one from History of the Atlantic World. So I will be back right after uh, this. The History of the Atlantic World is a long-form history show that tells a tragic tale of conquistadors, war, slavery, and genocide. But within the tragedy of life lay the inspirational stories of revolutionaries, escaped slaves, and pirates. I'm Jesse Weist, your allegedly hilarious host, and this story begins in 1492, with the tale of someone so infamous you already know his name. And I am back and ready to begin some Bigfoot goodness. So like I said, we are the first town I'm going to go through, the first town I'm going to talk about is good old Willow Creek, California. Uh, Willow Creek is technically a census-designated place with a population of 1,710. It's nestled on the northeast end of Humboldt County in Northern California, like Northern Northern California. Willow Creek is known as the Bigfoot capital of the world, and for good reason. Not only was the wildly controversial Patterson-Gimlin film shot there, but also tracks found in the early 1950s would lead to the term Bigfoot being coined. On the morning of July 28, 1958, Jerry Crew started his long, two-and-a-half-hour commute from his home in Sailor, California. He was working on a years-long construction project in the Shasta Trinity National Forest, close to the Willow Creek area. Most employees had set up temporary housing on the site so they could be more close. Jerry had opted to drive there and back for the week, so he'd drive there on the week, stay for the week, come back on the weekends. Uh, he had many obligations to his community up in Siler, so he didn't want to give those up, and that's why he made made the commute. As Crew approached his bulldozer that morning, he noticed it was surrounded by strange tracks. He didn't think too much about them at the time, but when he actually got up into the seat of the dozer and looked down at them, they seemed human-like and were very large. Crew brought this to the attention of his foreman, Wilbur Shorty Wallace. Once Shorty saw the footprints, he thought that what had ever made them had been the culprit for some other strange happenings around the site. Shorty said that in another part of the construction site, a 450-pound oil drum had been thrown into a gully. And he knew that it had been thrown because, like, none of the foliage or the grass or anything in the gully had been disturbed. So, like, it didn't roll down. Nothing carried it down. It was just, you know, undisturbed gully and then oil drum at the bottom of the gully. A 700-pound spare tire had also been tossed into a ditch. Once word got around, other employees started coming forward, also reporting large footprints. Crew made plaster casts based off the suggestion and instruction of a taxidermist named Bob Titmus. His story and pictures of Crew and his plaster cast were published in the Humboldt Times, and the writer of the article, Andrew Ginzoli, used the term that many of the construction workers had started calling the creature that made such big feet. They called it, of course, Bigfoot. That's not the end of the story of the Bigfoot tracks. In 2005, 
the sons of a noted practical joker and logger, Ray Wallace came forward after his death and claimed that it was their father who had made the tracks that Jerry Crew found. The son said he used stompers, wooden car feet he wore much like snowshoes to make the tracks. So could it all have been a hoax? Perhaps not. There are many uh, discrepancies between Wallace's stompers and Crew's cast. The stompers do not seem to match the shape of the plaster cast. And I've got a picture that will be in the show notes, and you can see it. They're, it's a um, not like a completely different shape, but you can see that they are not the same in the least. Uh, the details, such as dermal ridges and the depth of the tracks, could not have been recreated with a wooden carving. So what this is kind of positing is that dermal ridges are really hard to fake. They're the little round, you know little tracks that you have in your fingerprints and your your toes and everything so one no one ever thinks to do that when they're making fake tracks and two they're just it's time consuming and hard to do the other thing is that these tracks were deep deep enough that they had to have been made by something heavy something much heavier than a normal you know a a guy so whatever made them was weighed weighed enough to press down so far into the dirt to make these tracks. And also, no one's really been able to quite recreate those tracks based off of the method that they claim their father used. And you're going to see this a lot in in both of the Willow Creek kind of stories, and just almost every Bigfoot thing in general is... I feel that that's kind of the way it goes. Every big piece of Bigfoot evidence comes like full on into someone saying that they've hoaxed it or they know someone that's hoaxed it. Um, no, I don't think so. Like I said, there's just you can't it's, you can't just walk around with big wooden things on your feet and make these deep, detailed casts. So I don't. I think I don't know if they were just trying to. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to cast aspersions on anyone, but you know there have been some there's been some talk back and forth about which is which and what actually happened but being a town close to the footprints that started it all would probably be enough to earn willow creek the moniker of bigfoot capital of the world however 954 frames of 16 millimeter film shot in 1967 is what would really earn willow creek its nickname Roger Patterson and Robert Gimlin rode out on horseback along Bluff Creek, a tributary of the Kalmuth River. Patterson was an avid Bigfoot researcher and cowboy. Sparked on by reports of new Bigfoot tracks in Bluff Creek, Patterson and Gimlin had decided to go out and shoot some documentary footage about the tracks. When the two men came around a bend, they came upon a large uprooted tree blocking the creek. At first, their horses began to rear and act strange, and soon Patterson and Gimlin found out why. Walking up the creek bed was a gigantic ape-like humanoid covered in dark hair. Patterson jumped off his horse and grabbed his rented 16mm camera from a saddlebag. He started shooting, dropped the camera, and quickly picked it up and shot what would easily become the best and most widely debated footage of Bigfoot. The 59.5 second motion picture depicts the creature walking up the creek. It does not seem to react to the men until Gimlin rides further into the creek. At that point, it looks over his shoulder as it continues walking off into the trees. Over the years, the film has been attempted to be debunked, but to this day, it still remains the best video evidence of Bigfoot. Most skeptics claim that what we are seeing is just a man in an ape costume. Even though some have come forward, many have come forward to claim that they are the person in the suit, none of their claims have ever been corroborated. So you got like, just not, it's weird because you don't have just like one guy coming up saying, I did it, you've got, there's been a few, um, and a lot of them don't even know like where to go to find, you know, they, they couldn't find the site. Analysis of the film have shown that whatever is walking in the film has muscle mass underneath the skin and is therefore not a costume. However, the film is just blurry enough, like most Bigfoot evidence, uh, that you can't really make a conclusion either way. 
Skeptics also point out the wobbly gait the thing in the video has as further evidence that it's a man in a costume. There have also been studies that have shown that a person in a costume, actually a person just in general, cannot possibly walk like the creature in the film is walking. And it does walk a little weird. Um, there's a great episode of Monster Quest. It's season one, episode five, which is the Bigfoot episode. Which is weird because it's not the first Bigfoot episode, but that's the one they just call Bigfoot. Where they do a study, you know, and they cannot get someone to recreate the the walk. You know, he's hunched over and he's got, you know, he can't, he just can't do it. And, um, you know, they always say that it's like a wobbly gait and that it's, you know, oh, this look at this guy, he can't walk very well in the costume. But when I look at the film, yeah, it walks funny, but... It doesn't seem to have any trouble walking. It's walking very smoothly, very casually. It's just walking different. Uh, so, you know, I kind of lean towards it. I think that this footage is genuine. Patterson quickly partnered with his brother-in-law, Al Atley, to take the film on tour in order to raise funds for more thorough research uh, of the creature. All three men, so Atley, Patterson, Gimlin agree to split the profits, so they, they went into partnership together. However, Giblin soon felt like he was being squeezed out of the partnership and would quickly fall out of favor and friendship with Patterson. For five years, the two friends would remain estranged, until 1972, when Roger Patterson was dying of cancer. On his deathbed, they made up and apologized to each other. Patterson told Gimlin that as soon as he was better, they would go out and find the Bigfoot. He would pass away the very next day. Patterson died on January 15th of 1972. Gimlin, who until recently stayed out of the spotlight, still carries the torch of the story and the incredible footage. If you get a chance to visit Willow Creek, make sure to stay at the Bigfoot Hotel and check out the Bigfoot Museum and shop around at Bigfoot Books. And make sure to take a hike at Six Rivers National Forest. Who knows what you'll see. But that's, you know, one, it's not just a story of Bigfoot, it's a story of friends and coming together and just, you know, not letting something get between you. But, like I said, like, Gimlin, he kind of stayed out of the spotlight until very recent, until like 2005-ish, where he's done some interviews, and he still, you know, he for the most part, he maintains his story. He, you know, he carries the torch. Uh, Patterson did self-publish a book about Bigfoot with a bunch of, like, hand-drawn maps and, uh, you know, stories taken from newspapers and stuff around the time, which I would love to get my hands on. So that I'm, that's something I think I'm going to try to uh, track down. It was published, like, in the 60s, I think, and then republished in 2005 uh, under a different title and had some more stuff added to it. But that's the story of really what kicked off uh, the Bigfoot craze. And just like the UFO thing, you know, you can track it to this point in time, but as we know now, like, there is... There's so many more sightings and encounters that happened you know, before this that help, I think, substantialize it because you can sit there and go, oh yeah, this, you know, uh, this was hoax, but what about all the sightings and stories that came before this? Like I said, he wrote a whole book, wrote, in quotation marks, a whole book based off of newspaper clippings that he had of other sightings that, you know, predate this stuff. So, make what you will of it, but I think there's a lot more to it being maybe a substantial video than it being a hoax and that's what it is and that's what that's why we know Willow Creek today and they've really clung to it uh our west coast correspondents uh Taylor will he sent me a bunch of, of photographs a bunch of pictures photographs it's night photographs a bunch of pictures uh of when they went on vacation up there which I think I'm gonna I'll probably make a nice uh, beefy Instagram post of some of the more choice photos so thanks for that and uh, we'll post those on uh, Instagram stscast.gram 
is the Instagram handle if you're looking for it. But let's uh, move on to Arkansas and uh, Boggy Creek and Folk Arkansas and uh, there's a couple of other towns and a couple of other names in there too for another exciting Harry Hamina tale. The Beast of Boggy Creek or the Folk Monster, whichever you want to call it. And we're going to move on to Folk Arkansas and talk about the Folk Monster or, like I said before, possibly the Beast of Boggy Creek. Uh, both great names, so pick whichever one you want. The Pacific Northwest isn't the only place that may harbor an elusive creature. In the backwoods of the Sulphur River Basin of Arkansas lurks something similar but different, a leaner, wiry version of Bigfoot with fiery red eyes. They call it the Beast of Boggy Creek, or the Folk Monster. Folk Arkansas is a small community of around 860 people. It lies just south of Texarkana and is surrounded by swamps, forests, and waterways such as Boggy Creek and the Sulphur River. Sightings of the monster started around the early 1900s. People started seeing it in the much smaller communities of Jonesville and Boggy Town, which was a sawmill town that is pretty much gone nowadays. So like a sawmill town, is much like a gold rush town, just uh, with forest instead of gold. People would rush in, uh, make a lot of money off the lumber, a town would sprout up, and then it would go away, just kind of like the gold rush towns of California and all that. So a similar, so it's not really there anymore, but it was. These early sightings were not well documented, and in fact, they were probably weren't documented at all. The creature was seen as early as 1908 in and around Boggy Town. In 1916, a curious encounter happened nearby what is now Wright-Packman Lake. A family was returning home on their mule-drawn carriage when they heard a loud high-pitched wail. Then they saw a large dark hairy beast emerge from the forest. It continued to howl as it crossed the road angrily waving its arms at the family. The family and their mules became frightened but the father was able to get the mules under control and get them out of there. The next day, the father and a few townspeople went back to the site to look for evidence, but didn't find anything. There would be sightings all throughout the early decades, but it wouldn't be until the late 60s and early 70s that the folk monster would become the legend it has grown to be. In 1965, Lynn Crabtree, a boy of 14 at the time encountered the monster while squirrel hunting one evening. He heard the sounds of horses, which he knew belonged to the neighbors, and this was nothing out of the ordinary. Then he heard a new noise, a noise that sounded like a dog howling. Lynn walked towards the sound, thinking the dog may be in distress. To his shock, it was no distressed dog. What Lynn Crabtree saw was a seven-foot bipedal creature covered in reddish colored hair and a brown nose close to its face. The creature seemed agitated and when it saw the boy it began stalking towards him. Lynn let loose a burst of squirrel shot aiming at the thing's head. The shot seemed to do nothing and the beast continued towards the boy. Lynn let off two more shots before running back to the homestead. His father, Smokey Crabtree, ventured outside to investigate but only found squirrel shot in some of the surrounding trees. It would soon come to light that Lynn wasn't the only Crabtree to see the thing. Fred Crabtree also claimed to see a similar creature months earlier near Jonesville. James Crabtree, Lynn's uncle, said he saw the beast a decade earlier. Crabtrees had once lived in Boggytown in its heyday. Even Smokey Crabtree would go on to be an advocate for the creature even though he would never see it himself. It would seem that the Beast of Boggy Creek was a Crabtree family tradition. After Lynn's encounter, other townspeople would start showing up at the Crabtree's property, offering to help find the monster. Armed with guns and dogs, the posse searched the property, but came up empty-handed. The group were able to get something to call back to them using a wounded rabbit call. But that was, probably about, that was about the only evidence they found, and they didn't record it. 
The Crabtree sightings were stir stories among the locals of Folk and Jonesville. However, in 1971, another set of sightings by another family would take the story national. On the night of May 2nd, 1971, the Ford family, who had just moved into their new home five days prior to the incident. The incident started that night when Elizabeth Ford saw a hairy hand coming in through her window. She said she also saw fiery red eyes and that it didn't make any noise except for breathing. Bobby Ford, his brother Don, and another man named Charles Taylor found the creature near the back of the house. They fired at it several times with a shotgun and then called Ernest Walraven, the folk constable. Walraven came out with another shotgun and a spotlight. The group of men once again found the beast near the back of the home. They fired at it and thought they saw it fall. After that, they heard screams from inside the house. Bobby Ford ran back to the home and got up the back steps where he was grabbed by the creature and they both stumbled to the ground. After a short struggle, the creature ran off into the nearby woods. Bobby was taken to nearby St. Michael Hospital where he was treated for mild shock and some scratches. The next day, the Fords and Walraven found pieces of metal that surround the bottom of the house had been torn away. And I think the reason why the Ford kind of story really blew everything up is because you had some physical evidence. You had that damage to the house. You had uh, a lot of eyewitnesses. Uh, you've got like, you know, you've got the, the police, you've got the constable who, who saw it too. And also the fact that he went, he went to the hospital and he was treated for scratches and all of that. After the Ford's encounter, a radio station, K-A-A-Y, offered a $1,090 reward for capture of the monster. Then a local man by the name of Ray Scoogins offered his own $200 reward. The reward went so far as to have a committee of city officials verify if the creature that was caught was valid. Then, on June 15th, large three-toed tracks would be found in a soybean field owned by Willie Smith. Many showed up to investigate the tracks, including Ernest Walraven, Willie Smith, Jim Powell, the journalist who started covering the story beginning with the Ford encounter, and even Smokey Crabtree. The 13 and a half inch tracks meandered through the bean field for about 150 yards before disappearing. Powell thought the tracks were rather dubious, however, since whatever made them seemed to have taken uh, careful care not to step on any of the beans. The Ford's encounter, the tracks, and the reward made the folk monster national news. Just like the Mothman of Point Pleasant, hunters, monster seekers, and others swarmed onto the small town to claim either a sighting of the creature or claim the reward itself. After a few years of this increased tourism, nothing was found. I mean, I think there were other tracks found because if you uh, read the great book by uh, Mr. Lyle Blackburn, which is what I use for most of this research, The Beast of Boggy Creek, he talks about how there were some three-toed tracks found and some five-toed tracks found. Um, my little interesting theory on that is that perhaps there were a couple of these monsters and maybe one lost a couple of toes, say like in a bear trap or something, or maybe it's just a deformity, or you know, it might just be a couple of hoaxers trying to get get their piece of something. So maybe some of the tracks are real, some of the tracks are not. People looking for the creature and or easy money weren't the only ones who came to Folk, Arkansas. In 1972, a former advertising man turned filmmaker Charles B. Pierce came to town. Using a documentary style and a script based off of many encounters around the area and even witnesses and townspeople as actors, including Smokey Tra Crabtree as a sort of an advisor, he made The Legend of Boggy Creek. The film would go on to become a cult classic. And uh, I haven't seen it, but after uh, researching this case and reading the book, I'm going to find some time to uh, give that a watch. The Crabtree and the Ford encounters were not the only sightings that happened around the time. On May 24, 1971, uh, three people would be driving near Boggy Creek one night. 
Mr. and Mrs. D.C. Woods and Mrs. R.H. Sedgas. Suddenly, a giant monkey-like creature ran across the road close to the car before disappearing into the forest. The Woods had lived in the area for years and were respected by the community, which led credence to their story. A month after the Ford incident, Gloria Dean Ritchie saw the creature squatting on an embankment across the street from her home near Texarkana on Oat Street. Ritchie and two other witnesses, Jerry Smallwood and Junior Goodman, shined a light on the creature, which caused it to run off into the woods. It returned minutes later, and this caused the men to grab their guns and call the police. A search of the area did turn up some four-inch wide tracks by a nearby fertilizer plant. Famed polka rock musician of the band Brave Combo, Carl Finch, saw the creature as well. Finch was on his way to a battle of the bands in Shreveport, Louisiana. The band was driving down Highway 71, which at the time was really the only way in and out of Folk, Arkansas, was you had to get there by Highway 71. Now there's a couple of other routes into it, but so you'll see a lot of action in the story on Highway 71. It was a spring night in 1967 when they saw what may have been the folk monster. They saw the creature in their headlights. The creature was running in the same direction as the car. It was running pretty fast and ran along the car as they closed the gap. They saw its lanky body covered in hair. The beast did not seem to react to their car at all. As years go on, sightings have waned but are still reported to this day. However, even though the hysteria surrounding the folk monster has died down, there is still one more facet to the story. In 1991, Smoky Crabtree came into possession of a skeleton. Two men had found it near the Texas-Louisiana border. The headless and skinless remains were that of a large creature. Crabtree made a deal with the other two men to share in any future profits the skeleton may bring. He would keep it in a glass coffin on display to a select few. However, investigation later into the remains had uncovered that they were most likely that of a Siberian tiger that had died of pneumonia. The tiger had belonged to a Texas man who raised exotic animals. Um, if you uh, read read uh, Lyle's book, he kind of tracked down, I think, a sheriff, a Texas sheriff, who basically said, hey, this is where it came from. We can pinpoint where it came from. And I, there's a newspaper article in there as well that pretty much sum up that this is what the thing is. That's the thing. Without the head, it could have really have been anything, depending on how the skeleton is arranged. Not saying that Smokey hoaxed it, but I just don't know if he knew what he had at the time. And I think maybe uh, just excitement and imagination may have gotten the better of him in that case. There are many ideas as to what the folk monster is. Perhaps it was an escaped ape from a circus train wreck, as some around the area have said. There doesn't seem to be such a documented train wreck in the area around folk. I mean, like Lyle points out, and it just kind of makes sense, if a circus train wrecks, you're going to know about it. There's going to be some coverage of it. There was, however, two circus trucks that overturned in the town Mena, Arkansas. Two trucks from the Camper Brothers Circus overturned on Highway 71, and among the escaped animals were three monkeys. Mena is 120 miles north of Folk. Could a family of these monkeys survived and for some reason settled around the folk area? Could it just be a large cat such as a panther or mountain lion? Even though the park services of Arkansas say there are no such creatures, there may be small amounts of these cats around. The park service basically says like, no, they don't live here, but you may encounter, like there's not large enough numbers for us to really be able to like document them and say, yeah, there's, you know, so there might be small packs, pods of cats here and there, but not enough to warrant like a, a large population of them. Many of the sightings have taken place in the dark, which uh, would make it possible to misidentify the creature. Too many of these counters, though, seem to debunk this idea since the animal always seems to be bipedal. Maybe, just like Bigfoot, it's just yet another undiscovered creature. There are many thousands of square miles of forest all over this country. If these animals are very few in numbers, like let's say there's only like 50 of these things, a couple of Bigfoot, a couple of folk, 
uh, monster type creatures, a couple of Ohio grassmen here. It would be, I mean, the chances of you ever spotting one, let alone getting on film, would be uh, slim to none, I would think. Whatever the Beast of Boggy Creek is, one thing is certain. It has become a part of Folk Arkansas's DNA. And I really like, uh, I, I, I would love to see like a picture of this thing because it just seems uh, way more scary than, than uh, Bigfoot. There's some great uh, drawings, some great artwork in, in Lyle, Lyle's book. So I, like I said, I'm going to have that linked in the show notes. Grab a copy of it, give it a read. He really goes into some stuff. Like he has some appendices in the back where he breaks down uh, pretty much every scene of the movie and goes, this scene was based off of this encounter. This scene was based off of this experience. And then I think there's another appendix in there that is just kind of a summary of just uh, encounter and sighting after sighting after sighting. And uh, he still goes out there today. People still call him to come and check out sightings of the folk monster today. I think he's working on a couple of new sightings right now. But that has been our Bigfoot stories, Folk, Arkansas, and uh, Willow Creek, California. We're going to take a short musical interlude. No new music yet. I'm hoping next episode to have a new track ready to go. But after that, we're going to come back and we're going to do the local headlines. local headlines we've got them queued up and ready to go the first one is from uh, express.co.uk it's written by claire anderson and this is uh it's got a video with it so uh you can check that out spine chilling whale of ghost la lorana caught on camera had to sleep with mum in quotation marks the ghost appears to wail loudly from the tree chop in the footage with social media users calling it the scariest thing they've ever seen. A ghostly figure of a woman moves above the tree. According to petrified residents, the ghost appeared in broad daylight in a treetop in the municipality of Monitos, Cordova, Colombia. In Latin American folklore, La Llorona, or the Weeping Woman, is a famous legend about a mum who drowned her two sons in a river before taking her own life and becoming cursed. 
She was, then, refused entry into heaven until she could find her children's lost souls, according to the myth. The legend says that Lalarana wails and abducts children, who she then drowns in the river where she killed her sons, hoping in vain that their souls will finally bring her rest. The video left social media users petrified, as one admitted to having to sleep with their mom. One person said, after hearing about this, I had to sleep with my mom and I haven't even seen the video yet. But in a dig at political leaders, another viewer said, this is, this is faker than the claimed innocence of Uribe, former Colombian president, or the intelligence of Ivan Duque, current Colombian president. Alleging the whole myth was a conspiracy, a user wrote, these legends are used by unscrupulous people who want to buy properties at knockdown prices. If they can't buy them cheap, La Lorena suddenly appears. Meanwhile, another viewer said, Instead of scaring me, this video made me laugh. What is that woman doing up there? She is going to fall. Does she think she will find her kids in the treetop? This next story is uh, from AP News out of L.A., which I know is not a small town, but it talks about a small town-ish thing, uh, by Brian Maley. And this is AP exclusive Sierra Skeleton ID'd as the Ghost of Manzanar. Los Angeles, AP. A skeleton found by hikers this fall near California's second highest peak was identified Friday as Japanese-American artist who had left the Manzamar internment camp to paint in the mountains in the waning days of World War II. The Inyo County Sheriff used DNA to identify the remains of Gaichi Matsumura, who succumbed to the elements during a freak summer so snowstorm while on a hiking trip with other members of the camp. Matsumura had apparently stopped to paint a watercolor while the other men, a group of anglers, continued toward the lake to fish. His body wasn't found for another month, and the tragedy was overshadowed in the immediate days after his August 2, 1945 disappearance when the U.S. dropped the first atomic bomb, hastening Japan's surrender in the war. Matsumura was one of the more than 1,800 det detainees who died in the 10 prison camps in the West, though it's one of the more unusual deaths. While his burial in the mountains was well known among members of the camp and his family, the story faded over time, and the location of the gravesite in a remote border-strewn area 12,000 feet above sea level was lost to time. Lori Matsumura, the granddaughter who provided the DNA sample, was surprised when Sergeant Nate Durr of the Inyo County Sheriff's Office contacted her to say they believed her grandfather's remains had been discovered. After all, he had been found nearly 75 years ago and buried. It was a bit of a rediscovery, she told the Associated Press. We knew where he was approximately because we knew the story of what had happened, so we knew he was there. As a girl, she was haunted by a photo her grandmother showed her of the pile of stones where her grandfather was buried beneath, a small marker in the remote mountains. Once in a great while, she would bring it out and say, oh, this is all they could bring of your grandfather. And my aunt would be, no, don't show her that picture, Matsumira said. It did scare me, like, oh my god, that's my grandfather under there? Her aunt, Kuze, told her that her grandfather was known as the Ghost of Manzamar. To this day, it seems like he's not passed away, Kuze, who died two years ago at 83, told Manzamar National Historical Site. It seems like he's gone someplace because I didn't see his body. It was on accident on October 7th that Tyler... Hoffner and a friend stumbled upon the remains on their way to the top of Mount Williamson. The two were off course on a crude route through a jambrel of granite boulders in a basin of lakes when Hoffner looked down and saw what looked like a bone. Earlier in the day, the men had discovered a pile of bones beneath Shepherd Pass, where a herd of migrating deer had plummeted to their death two years earlier on a steep icy slope. At first, Hoffner thought the bone was more animal remains but upon closer inspection, he realized it was a human skull. Hoffner and Brandon Follen moved the rocks and found an intact skeleton with a belt around its waist and leather, shoe, leather shoes on its feet. The arms appeared to be crossed over the chest. Hoffner posted about this find on Facebook forum, describing inaccurately that the skull appeared to be fractured and the shoes were the type worn by rock climbers. He suggested it was a case of foul play. When contacted by AP, the sheriff's office said that there were no signs of a crime. 
They said it was a mystery, though, because they had searched records of missing reports going back decades and said no one was known to be lost in the area that would fit that description. What officials didn't say, though, was that by the time they had retrieved the bones by helicopter, they had already had a hunch it was Matsumura. While his story was little known, it got renewed attention when the Myanmar Fishing Club documentary film came out in 2012. Director Kori Shiozoki told the story about intrepid prisoners who would escape from the camp at night and slip in the mountains to fish for trout, sometimes for weeks at a time. A segment of the film on Matsumura's death didn't make the final cut. Still, Shiozoki often addressed a tragedy at the many screenings where he spoke and the story became more broadly known. In the final year of the war, the guard towers were no longer manned with armed soldiers and the people were free to leave the camp. The Matsumiras, like many others, had no home or business, businesses to return to, so they remained behind. When a group of fishermen planned a hike to the chain of lakes in Williamson Bow, Matsumira insisted on tagging along. The trip leader didn't want Matsumira, 46, to join them because he was older and not in great physical shape, but he eventually relented, Shiazoki said. The group of six to ten men headed into Sierra Nevada on July 29th, 1945. At some point in the demanding trek, Machimura stopped to paint a watercolor and said that he would catch up later. A freak snowstorm blew in and the fishermen retreated to a cave. When the weather cleared, they searched fruitlessly for Matsumura. Three later, search parties from the camp also failed to find him. During that period, his wife, Ito, worried so much that her hair turned the color of snow, according to Kusei, who was ten at the time. I felt sorry for my mom, you know, Kuze told the National Park Service. She couldn't eat or anything. She had black hair and it turned white all of a sudden. Matsumira's decomposing remains were found a month after he was lost by the hikers from the nearby town of Independence. Members from the camp then hiked back up to bury him in a mountainside grave under a sheet his wife provided, according to the Park Service. Atop the granite stones placed on his body was a granite column with a paper note attached to mark the site in Japanese characters. It gave his name, age, and said, rest in peace. The burial party brought back clippings of his hair and fingernails, a Buddhist tradition when a body can't be returned for a ceremony at the camp. Rather than reopen an old wound in the family's past, the finding has awakened interest in learning more about their story and the time in the camp and sharing it with nephews and nieces, Lori Matsumura said. Until she recently saw a photo of the search party, Lori Matsumura never knew her father, Masuri, had played a role in looking for his dad. Her father never talked about the experience, and she now regrets not pressing him for more information. Like many who endured the hardships and humiliation, of one of the darkest chapters of U.S. history when more than 110,000 people of Japanese descent, two-thirds American citizens, were imprisoned because, they, because of fear they would remain loyal to their ancestral homeland, Masira Matsumura seemed bitter and rarely spoke of the camp, Lori Matsumura said. He had been close to graduating from high school when his family was sent to Mianzamar. After his father's death, Masira Matsumura had to support his mother and three siblings when they returned to Santa Monica. He had to take a job as a gardener, as his father had done. Kuze Matsumura said her mother, widowed at 43, worked two or three jobs, according to the oral history she gave Manzimar, Manzanar. Ito Matsumura was 102 when she died in 2005. She was buried with a lock of her husband's hair and his name on her gravestone. Most of what Laura Matsumura knows of the camp came from her grandmother and aunt who lived across the street from a little home where she grew up in Santa Monica. Now that her curiosity has been sparked, Lori Matsumira has no one to ask about their experiences in camp or impact of her grandfather's death on the family. Her father died last summer at age 94, the last of his generation. I wish we would have dug a little deeper and found out more stories from my dad, she said. He didn't talk about it much. I wish I would have asked him more questions. And um, it's Manzanar. I, can't, I think I was saying Manzanar a lot, but the town, the little camp was called Manzanar. And this last one is from Reuters in Denver. Is there an author on this story? Let me get out of reading mode here. Yes, Keith Kaufman is the... And uh, if you've been keeping your ear to uh, the stuff we talk about on the show, you might have heard about this. 
uh, FAA probes clusters of mysterious drones flying over Colorado. The Federal Aviation Administration has launched an investigation into nighttime sightings of unidentified drones flying in formation over rural northeastern Colorado and southwest Nebraska over the last two weeks, the agency said on Tuesday. The cluster of drones, technically known as unmanned aircraft systems, have been spotted in at least four counties in Colorado, garnering national media attention. FAA spokesman Ian Greger said in a statement emailed to Reuters that multiple FAA divisions and government agencies are investigating these reports, adding that the agency does not comment on the details of its open investigations. No private companies nor government agencies have claimed the drones. The Phillip County, Colorado Sheriff's Office said in a December 20th Facebook post it was investigating multiple reports of drone sightings in the, in the county over the last week. On that day, deputies from Phillips and Yuma counties tracked over 16 drones between the two counties. We believe that the drones, though startling, are not malicious in nature. I don't know about that. Phillips County Sheriff Thomas Elliott said in a phone interview that the drones with blinking lights are flying in square grid patterns nearly every night between 5 and 10 p.m. and appear to be widening their path. They now have moved into Morgan County, Colorado, and have been spotted, spotted, oof, and have been spotted in Perkins County, Nebraska. He said. Elliott said that he had spoken to an FAA investigators about whether the agency could determine if the aircraft were being used to map the area for possible oil and gas exploration purposes. Wyatt Harmon, who chased the drones when they flew over Washington, Colorado, Washington County, Colorado, sorry, property, told NBC, told NBC's Today Show on Tuesday that seeing the mysterious aircraft was unnerving. They can sit there and hover, Herman said. They can descend very fast. They can take off very fast. U.S. Senator Cory Gardner, a Colorado Republican and a member of the Senate Commerce Subcommittee on Aviation and Space, said in a Tuesday statement that he had been in contact with the FAA. I am encouraged that they've opened a full investigation to learn the source of the purpose of the drones, said Gardner, who's from Yuma County. Last week, the FAA pros requiring all drones operating in the U.S. airspace to be remotely tracked, a, more, a move which Sheriff Elliott said he would welcome. I could put all this to rest if whomever is doing this would come forward and identify themselves, Elliott said. Additional reporting by David Shepherson in Washington, editing by, editing by Billy Tarrant and Richard Chang. And actually, there's been some more uh, de uh, some developments on this. The thing is, they are having obviously having troubles getting clear pictures of these things because they're usually at night. And these aren't like the drones that you're thinking of. These aren't the little go out and buy one at a hobby shop with propeller drones on it. Like, these are like unmanned aircraft drones. These are ones that look like tiny planes. And apparently, there's been some news coverage of it now, that uh, they know when you're looking at them. When people try to take pictures of them or when people train their attention on them, they they fly away. They disperse them. They go away. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure it's only a matter of time before someone tries to shoot one down. So we'll keep an eye on that and see if that comes to happen. And that has been this episode's Local Headlines. We'll be back uh, very shortly with uh, your small town secrets and the end of this episode. So I think I'm going to just do one short and sweet uh, small town secret this week. Uh, the reason being is because I don't know what I did. I had a really bad coughing fit, like right before the right before I started talking about um, Willow Creek, and my throat and my nasal stuff has just gotten all messed up. So I'm not feeling too hot all of a sudden, and I've had a couple of weird uh, technical issues. So I think I'm just going to do this one, finish up the show, and get it done before uh, something disastrous happens. But I'll save the other one that I had, which is actually kind of long and involved, and I think I can actually dig into it a little more and have a really juicy uh, Your Small Town Secret for Episode 2. So, just going to do a real quick one from uh, Columbia, Pennsylvania. This was given to me by Andrew Gable uh, of the Forgotten Darkness podcast. 
Uh, he gave it to me over Instagram. Really simple, he just said, we have the Alba Twitches in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Dwarf Bigfoot, basically. And I've actually, I've heard of the Alba Twitches before. And I actually have a, a great little book. I've mentioned it before on the show. Uh, Chasing American Monsters by Jason Offit. And I grabbed that book. I was like, I bet they're in here. And sure enough, when I got to the Pennsylvania chapter, they were. So I used some information from that and some other stuff. And just cobbled together a little thing about what Alba Twitches are. The Alba Twitch, or Apple Snitch, has been described as a four-foot ape-like creature that enjoys stealing and throwing apples at people. Sightings of the tiny Bigfoot creatures are as old as the state itself. However, there were many sightings starting in the 50s and going on through the 70s. So, so sort of a uh, Alba Twitch flap, if you will. A 20-year-long Alba Twitch flap. Columbia even holds an annual festival known as Alba Twitch Day, which I think they hold in October. So it's 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 already passed. But uh, if you you can if you find out you know you can just Google Alba Twitch Day, you'll find their website, and they're already planning for this year. So I'm just gonna do like I said that one little small one, and and there's a great one from Bardstown, Kentucky that uh, Richard Caldwell sent me. That's kind of involved, like I said. But I think this will give me an opportunity to really dig into it. And I'm going to save that. And I'll do that one uh, next episode. But that has been a truncated version. I apologize. But a segment nonetheless. And uh, I think that's going to do it for this episode of the show. So once again, thank everyone. I just want to thank everyone for listening and continuing to listen and getting us here to season three of the show. Uh, like I, like always, if you have a small town secret to share, anything, a a local legend like the Alba Twitches, uh, a UFO story, a Bigfoot story, a personal encounter, a haunting, a true crime thing, whatever, there's a lot of ways to get it to me. Uh, you can go to stscast.com, scroll down the bottom of the main page. There's an email form there. You can send it in that way. Uh, also on that page is links to everything, you know, the Facebook is on there, the Twitter. I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, you can also grab merch from the site. You can look at show notes from the site, pictures, all of that great stuff. Uh, you can also, like I said, get on social media. I am on Twitter, most active on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at STScast. And Instagram is different. It is at STScast.gram. You can get at me on social media with your story if you would like. There is also a subreddit, r slash STS listener stories, that if you want to go the Reddit route, you can get on there and post your story. And and yeah, a lot of ways to get it in here so that we can get it on the show. And I think that'll about do it for episode one of season three. Uh, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Until then, remember... Every town has a secret. What is yours?
Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.